Welcome to episode two of the Via Emmaus podcast. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Strock, pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So, David, how have the responses been um, to the first couple of broadcasts? The introduction, episode zero and episode one, which we had last week. Yeah, I think they've been good. At least that's what people have been saying. And I think uh, they're not lying about that uh, when they have been uh, listening to it. So uh, it's been fun just to kind of talk with people about the scripture reading that they're doing. I look forward to talking about it more. I have found that um, in class, in, in Bible study class last night, that there was a gentleman who said that he, he reads it in the morning as far as the reading plan, and mm-hmm. then he listens to it at night yeah. um, through the app. So again, I want to mention that the app is available. Um, if you go to the Play Store or if you go to the Apple um, the Apple Store, which is the, what is it called? The Apple Store? Is it called the I, Apple Store? Apple Store iTunes. I, iTunes. iTunes. Apple yeah. Store iTunes. Yeah. It is available on iTunes. Um, if you go to iTunes, just type in Via Emmaus. Um, that's how you find it on iTunes. And if you want the the app so that you can follow along via the app, you just search for Aquaquam Bible Church, and the app is available. It is free to use and um, Take advantage. So we did have some uh, input from listeners this week. Um, So we definitely want to get to that. And one of the things that I wanted to ask is in the McShane uh, reading plan, we read from different parts of the scripture. Is there a way to unite the passages? Yeah. So when we look at scripture, I think just um, the whole Bible comes from, from from one voice. It comes from God, right? God is the author of all scripture. Uh, using the many voices of, of men like Moses and Isaiah and Luke and many others. Um, so there's a, a unity uh, that is found there in the Bible. Uh, yet, when we're reading from different parts of the Bible, we may not always find an immediate connection uh, in the passages of Scripture. Uh, one of the purposes of the McShane reading plan is to read from different parts of the Bible. Um, because uh, at different times when you're reading a genealogy like you do today, uh, it may not always have the same kind of impact as just reading about Jesus in the Gospels. So I think that's one of the the wisdom or one of the parts of wisdom of reading different sections is we find different words that are more encouraging or more understandable than others. Um, So that might be one one reason there, as well as just reading different genres. Uh, Different parts of the Bible just give us different... uh, aspects, whether it's the affections that they're stirring up confidence in God's promises in the Old Testament, uh, or the Psalms and just the the praise or the laments that we find there, or just a a crystal clear vision of who Jesus is uh, from a book like Hebrews. So reading from different parts of the Bible help us to do that, and uh, it keeps us thinking through uh, different sections of Scripture. But at the same time, we may find passages like this last week, where on the same day you read from Genesis 7 uh, and Matthew 7. And in Genesis 7, it's the middle of the flood scene, where it's describing the waters that are coming upon the earth. Uh, And if you read in Matthew 7, you see at the very end um, this parable that Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a man who builds his home um, on the rock and another who builds his home on uh, the sand, and one of them stands, one of them falls, but both of them go underneath the flood. They both go under the judgment of God. And so it may be helpful to see the way in which that imagery of judgment in Matthew 7 is actually picking up imagery um, from Genesis chapter 7. And it just so happens uh, that we read both of those on the same day. So sometimes we see easy connections like that. 
Other times it may not be exactly that way, but we do see the way that the Old Testament is preparing the way for the New Testament, and the New Testament constantly is quoting from the Old Testament and making application to Jesus and to the church from the things that are promised in the Old Testament. That is definitely one area where I'm growing and recognizing the connection, the close connection between the Old and the New Testament and how the New Testament um, writers were so versed in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so when you read them together, that really mm -hmm. comes to light. Yeah. I mean, just real simply, if you're reading from a Bible and it has cross-references, right? So just little letters there in the text and maybe at the bottom or the side and those cross-references are there, it's really helpful to see those places. So a cross-referenced Bible is a really helpful tool for that. Uh, if you're not reading from one of those, it may be helpful to find uh, a Bible like that. Um, or just in your own mind to have kind of a mental cross-reference to say, okay, I'm reading this here in one section, but it reminds me of this other passage. And the more connections that we find there, the more we see how the Bible is put together. So true. So we have a listener question uh, from Genesis 4. Mm -hmm. um, somebody wanted to know, why was Cain's sacrifice unacceptable? Right, so in Genesis 4, uh, we read of Cain and Abel, the two sons that uh, Moses selects to tell of here. We can assume that uh, Adam and Eve had many, many sons along the way. Um, in fact, we know that from Genesis 5. Uh, but here we find Cain and Abel, and they're both bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Now, it might be helpful to see that Genesis 3, actually there is a sacrifice before these sacrifices, or at least there's a good likelihood that that's the case. Genesis 3, verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right? So it's likely that the Lord provided a sacrifice, or that by making a sacrifice, he offers them skins there. So it seems as though, it's not as though Adam and Cain and Seth are coming up with this idea of offering and sacrifice, but it's something that was presented to them. Right. Right, so uh, reading the Bible, allowing one passage of Scripture to interpret another, we know from Hebrews 11 uh, that Abel offered a sacrifice by faith, and Cain did not, right? So Abel has mentioned that he is by faith, he's offering the sacrifice, uh, which means faith is always in response to the Word of God, right? So it's not as though we generate faith and that's some kind of sincerity that is, you know, um, directed towards God. It's always in response to God's Word. So however Abel is offering a sacrifice in Genesis 4, it's in response to the Word of God. Now it seems as though it's a word that we may not have in these passages here, but if God is the one who's giving a way of sacrifice in Genesis 3, he's teaching that to Adam. Adam in his priestly role that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is passing that on to his sons. It seems as though Cain is not offering it in the right way, and Abel is offering the sacrifice in the right way. One other aspect of this, in Genesis 4-7, says, if you do well, so this is God coming to Cain, right? And he says in verse 6, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, most translations today will interpret that word for sin as sin and not a sin offering, but it's the same Hebrew word. And the word in the ESV that translates there, patah, uh, for door, it could also be gate. 
The people of Israel, who are receiving this word, would have brought their sacrifices to the gate uh, at the front of the tabernacle, and the priest would then take it to present it before the Lord. If we were to read this as a sin offering before the door, not just kind of this temptation of sin kind of coming from within, but rather something more objective, right? Where this sin offering, he has an opportunity to bring this again to the gate before the Lord. Um, then it, it would be a case where he's failing to do what God had commanded. And so it's much less subjective and much more objective. Now there's something certainly um, subjective that one is presented with faith and the other is not. There are also some elements here that seem to indicate that there were commands that God gave to his people. Adam knew what they were. Abel was doing them, and Cain refused to do that. We can continue to see his sinful, unbelieving heart in the rest of the chapter as well. One of the observations that was made by our listener was that uh, in considering Cain, mm -hmm. that he realized that he needs to look at his own attitude in reference to service and worship. And I think mm -hmm. that we can apply that um, you know, across the board, you know, we do, I think so often we do things um, for God uh, because we know we should, mm -hmm. but not necessarily because our heart is in the right place. Yeah, I know yeah, that's important. And one of the things that's helpful to see too, like Cain and Abel, as well as Abraham and Sarah and, and later figures in the book of Genesis, like these individuals were written to give us a, a pattern, if you will, uh, and to give us an understanding of how we're to respond to God. So we'll see the name of Abel, we'll see the name of Cain again in the New Testament. Uh, so the New Testament writers are picking up these individuals uh, because they're instructive for us on how we are to worship God. So when we, when we talk about Cain, we look at Genesis 4, 14 and 15, um, where it says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from the face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, No, oh, said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. So I always wondered how would people know when they saw the mark on Cain that how would people know when they saw the mark that God put on Cain that it meant not to kill him? I don't know. That's probably my best answer. Yeah, that's a fa it's, a, it's a fascinating question. Yep. I think it also speaks to just the, the power of God, mm -hmm. you know, in, in everything. Yeah, I think, you know, again, when we come to questions like that, we just need to ask, okay, what, what's the main point uh, of this story here? And, and we can really get into the weeds, right, on questions like that, mm -hmm. right? And we could probably come up with some really weird theologies there and say, okay, uh, is it possible to receive the mark of Cain today? Right? That's not why Genesis 4 is being written here. I think it's helpful to see that this word for mark is the same word that will be used in, um, in Genesis 9 for the sign of the rainbow. Right, So we oh, say wow. it's the sign of Cain or the sign of the rainbow or the sign later uh, with different elements of the covenant as well. Right, So there's something signified here. It surely would have been clear uh, to those who are there. Some in, um, in the history of interpretation in, in the Jewish uh, understanding, traditions, saw that Cain himself was the sign. Right? And maybe there's something to that. Because again, in the New Testament, Cain becomes a model of who not to be like. Right. right? And, and the vengeance that he had. I do think in Genesis 4, this language of um, vengeance sevenfold, um, these numbers begin to be used in sometimes some symbolic ways. There will be complete vengeance upon those who will attack him. So there's this protection 
that God is giving to Cain. This is God's common grace. He doesn't deserve this. Just a few chapters later, we'll learn that those who kill should be killed. Right. right? That's the capital punishment instruction in Genesis 9. So somehow God is, is preserving him here. Later, in verse 24, it says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Really interesting, right? Because that's the same numbers that Peter brings to Jesus when he asks about forgiveness. Should I forgive a man seven times? And Jesus says, no, seven times, 70 or 77 times. Right. So it's almost as if he's using these numbers here to invert uh, what was happening with Cain and with Lamech. When we get to Matthew 18, we can talk a little bit more uh, about that. Um, but I think the main point is that God is present at work in the world uh, Cain and Abel are beginning to be two kinds of families, right? We talked about this last time. One that is worshiping God and, and calling upon him. Uh, that would be Abel's family and Seth's family. And then Cain's is showing those who are going away from the Lord, who are pursuing their own ways. And it's certainly a warning to us not to do that, right? But to respond to the word of God in faith uh, that we might receive his blessing. Speaking of family, Genesis, Genesis 5 gives a genealogy, um, and we notice that several people live to be over 900 years old. Do we have any idea why people lived so long prior to the flood? Uh, it's because they only ate vegetables, right? <laughs> Surely that must be what it is, right? Because Genesis 9 talks about eating not just the green plants, but the animals as well. Right. Uh, so... I guess that's because we eat too much bacon. That's the reason why. No, I'm not sure. Um, it, it may have something to do with the conditions on earth at that time. Uh, if you look at other genealogies of other um, uh, of ancient Near Eastern documents, some of them actually have even longer periods of time. Or if you count it slightly differently, it might be about the same that is here. Um, it does remind us that God did not create us to die. That's right. right? He created us to live forever. Right? But when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cut off from that tree of life, and they were cut off from the access to that eternal life. So it may be an indication to us, uh, again, that even these long periods of time, um, you know, remind us that, okay, our typical understanding of life is 70 years and 80 years if we're strong. That's what right. Moses says in Psalm 90. Uh, but again, God created us to live forever and ever. And these long periods of time are, are an indication, perhaps, of that. Sometimes I forget, or it's easy to overlook the fact that we are eternal. Hmm. We're going to either be in one place or the other. Yeah. Um, so I always think that, you know, people say, well, well, why did God take this person? And I always have to remember that this person is not actually gone to God. Hmm. But That's right. anyway, I know that doesn't have anything to do with that question. but it's, No, it's a good reminder yeah. to us, though. Absolutely. And speaking of uh, the family uh, mm -hmm. or, or the line of Adam, when we get to Enoch, um, it says that he lived for 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he then he was not for God took him. Yeah. Where did Enoch go? Uh, I mean, I would simply say that he went to be with God, right? I mean, again, when we look at Genesis 5, we see this one section of Enoch, right? So there are 10 names in this genealogy. And the theme of this section is, and he died, and he died, right. and he died, right? That comes again and again and again. And then we come to Enoch, and he doesn't die, right? So God's word tells us that if you eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die, 
right? And certainly death comes as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. That was the place of life. Now they're cast into a world of death. And even though they lived great long lives, they all came to die, right? right? And yet there's a glimmer of hope that death is not the only way, right? And so I read Enoch as is, is a, is a message to say, there's another way, right? He doesn't get into resurrection yet. We'll see something of that when we come to Abraham and Isaac. But here, there is a hope that death is not the only solution, right? And because he walked with God and was not, it, the, it changes the pattern of death in Genesis 5. And so I think he was taken to be with God in that moment. And as you just said, uh, you know, he is alive to God, right? God doesn't forget where he is. God knows. We may not know all the metaphysics of it, uh, but we know that he's been with God and that he doesn't die in the same way that these other men do. So moving to Genesis 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Mm -hmm. um, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there. Yeah. Um, who were the sons of God in verses 1 and 2? Yeah, uh, let me just keep reading where, where you stopped off there because we actually hear of the sons of God again, and it may actually help us. So verse 4 goes on, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Right, so there have been many interpretations of this passage. Right? So many. And, you know, some of them might come from, okay, well, these were angelic beings. And the reason why someone would think that is that the language of sons of God in places like Job chapter 1 uh, describes angelic beings. Um, as well as in the New Testament, you have passages uh, such as in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, 18 through 20, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and then in Jude, verses 6 and 7, uh, that will pick up some of these uh, episodes here of angelic beings who left the, the, their abode, right? They've crossed boundary lines. They, okay, that's what is being described here. Um, others want to say, no, it's not angelic beings because you have all kinds of problems with marriage and how do angelic beings, you know, have offspring with women and, and all of that. And so they say, no, the sons of God are the faithful sons, the line of Seth uh, that are calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and then they are the ones who are coming to the daughters of men, um, who are the wicked uh, men who we find from the line of Lamech. But I think that reads a little bit too much into the text as well, right? Because it doesn't describe the daughters of, of wicked men right. uh, that are there. And certainly godly men have attractive daughters as well. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah. Uh, right? And, and then, you know, the sons of God here, um, you know, it's helpful. So, so I don't think it's either one of those perhaps. Um, so one of the things that I did as I was going back to study this was to go back to something that Walter Kaiser wrote in a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible. And a third option here is that sons of God are kind of the, the leaders and the, the kings of the time period, right? And that they were manipulating the daughters of men uh, and that because of that, God is bringing judgment upon them. So here are a couple thoughts. One, sons of God language often has the idea of priest and king language, right? If we remember that Adam was created to have dominion over the earth as a king, 
and that that kind of kingship was to serve and to guard the holy places of God. He was to be a, a royal priest, and at the same time, he was uh, called the son of God. So Luke 3, 38 uses that language. But also, in Genesis chapter 5, it describes Adam in this way. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So it seems as though Adam, who was created in the image of God, his children were to be then made in the image of God as well, which is something we see in the rest of Scripture and that they carry this idea of having dominion over the earth. But then, in Genesis 6, it seems as though these men, these sons of God, these leaders, these rulers, are misusing the authority that they have. That's one thing to consider. The other piece that we see, and this is from verse 4, is this idea of Nephilim. Like, where, what is that? Yeah. It's a word that only shows up one more time. It's in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33. And it's not as though the Nephilim only happened before the flood. They're also referred to later on. But I think the key to understanding who the Nephilim are, and sometimes they're considered giants or something like that, is found here in this language at the end of verse 4. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. If we keep reading to Genesis 9, we'll see this language again with someone by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod... Uh, probably not a name that you want to name your child, if you're <laughs> expecting. Uh, but Nimrod was a mighty hunter. So it says in chapter 10, so I skipped over, chapter 10, verse um, 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. So there's that same language, right, of a mighty man. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, this is the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Right? So here's a king. He's a mighty man. Um, Babel, we know, is not a good place because in Genesis 11, in Babel, they're going to build the Tower of Babel in that place. And so it seems as though if we allow Genesis 10 to interpret Genesis 6, that these Nephilim, these mighty men, um, are those who were the sons or the kings at that time who were wicked, and they were all that way whether they are from the line of Seth or the line of Cain, except for one man, Noah. Noah is going to be a righteous man who walks before God like Enoch did. And now God is going to use Noah as a means of restarting the human race. I know that's kind of a lot of pieces to pull in there together, but I do think that's the way that we have to begin to interpret passages like this. So in this time, like, like you mentioned, it talked about um, the wickedness that was, you talked about the wickedness that was yeah. going on. And when you look down in verse 5, um, chap uh, chapter 6, verse 5, mm -hmm. the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, mm -hmm. and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What does it mean when the Bible says God grieved? Yeah, so just because we're, we're there in verse 5 and we're asking questions about sons of God and Nephilim, again, that's, there's that temptation, right, to kind of get in the weeds with those things. But the, the main thing is always the plain thing, right? And the plain thing here is that it's because of mankind's sin 
that God brings judgment. Right. right? And then it uses this language in verse 6 of his regretting or grieving, um, which is simply, I would say, it's attributing to God human emotions. Right? Sometimes that's known as an anthropomorphism. Right? It's a big <laughs> fancy word. simply means that we attribute um, man-like forms, that's what the word means, uh, to God in such a way that God is not like us. Right? We're made in His image, but we better not make Him in our image. Right. Right? That's idolatry. Right? But it uses this language to say that He is grieved or He is um, regretting these things. Uh, but He doesn't regret. He doesn't grieve the way that we do. It didn't catch Him off guard. Right? It certainly indicates this was not the purpose for which God created mankind uh, to be wicked and rebellious before Him. Uh, but this is indeed how he responds in his covenant relationship uh, with his people, right? We're going to see just a few verses later in Genesis 6 how God plans to make a new covenant with Noah. That's because the first covenant with Adam and his children has been broken, which again is why he's bringing judgment upon the earth. And in his relationship with mankind, uh, there is a kind of way that there is a, a sorrow and a regret that is there, but it is not because God in his divine nature is being acted upon or changed by humanity. Right? We may struggle with this because we want to see God in a relational way with us, but the way that an uncreated, eternal God relates to humanity is not the way that you and I relate to one another, or right. even the way that we relate to God, right? He is unique in that way. Um, and so that's where we have to use human language that approximates something about God, uh, but doesn't uh, get into entirely uh, what is going on in the divine nature. So how does this all tie into the flood? Um, so again, all this is kind of preparatory for the flood. And as we think about the flood, uh, covering chapters 6 through 9, uh, really, of, of Genesis, the flood is going to be this cataclysmic event of God's judgment on the world because of sin. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's going to be flood imagery that God is going to use again and again. Uh, I say use, he's going to actually bring floods upon uh, his enemies, right? We see this at the Red Sea. Right? The Red Sea, the waters of judgment are going to be used, and when they are used, they're going to be destroying Pharaoh and his army in the same moment that he's going to save his people Israel and bring them into his holy mountain. Well, that's the pattern that we see in Genesis 6-9. through 9. God brings judgment upon the world so that all flesh has been destroyed, and yet in the flood there is a Savior in Noah and in the ark, and those who are there are brought safely through the judgment. And so again, we see a pattern of salvation, even a gospel pattern, that is put right in the very beginning of the Bible, helps us to read the Bible, understand why it's given to us, that salvation is always brought through judgment. Or for us today, our salvation comes because judgment, the flood of God's wrath, was poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? And so it's not as though our salvation is just that God turns a blind eye to our sin. Rather, our sin was put upon the shoulders and the head of Jesus, and he was crushed under God's wrath. And in that way, he died for us Amen. and becomes for us a new Noah, 
a new savior, a greater Noah, Noah who goes and gets drunk again and shows <laughs> right. that he's not the savior of the world that we thought him to be, but in Christ who is perfect before his death and perfect after his death, uh, he is the one who brings us salvation through the flood of God's wrath. So we're going to do something a little different this week. We're going to um, take a, a little break right here. Uh, we'll be right back with the New Testament. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the Gospel Center Ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.